This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome to Tuesday's episode. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Dana Dorfman, and we talk about a topic that I think is so important and so applicable today. It's huge. And that is the topic of achievement anxiety in our kids and in parents, which is then put on to the kids, if you know what I'm saying. Dr. Dorfman has a book coming out soon, and it's called When Worry Works, and it's all about achievement anxiety and understanding our own achievement anxiety as parents and little things we can do with our kids to alleviate or not put more achievement anxiety onto them than they probably already have just from being a human living in the world. And I loved this conversation because she does give us lots of clear examples on how to do that. So I hate when people just say general things like validate their emotions. And it's like, no, but can you walk me through a specific example of how to do that? So we get into a lot of examples. We chat about anxiety, how it can benefit us, but then also when it starts to become too much and then it limits us. We talk about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. Also how nowadays everybody has such a narrow view of what success is. And I also talk a lot about my own experience as a young adult and a teenager. And not like, to be honest, my mom is going to listen to this episode and think she's like the best because my parents did a lot of really good things which like, I don't even know if they realized it at the time. But for example, my volleyball scholarship that I had in Florida, my first year university, I quit the team or left the team, however you want to say it. So Dr. Dorfman and I get into that example. And that then led me to asking her about quitting and what her thoughts are on that. And I know I've talked about quitting on Instagram before and people have such mixed feelings about it. In our society, it's like seen as a bad thing, like don't be a quitter. Um, But yeah, so she tells us what she thinks about that. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode and welcome Dr. Dana Dorfman to the Mom Room Podcast. To start, I thought you could tell us a little bit about yourself, your education, and I'm curious how you became interested in the topic of achievement anxiety. So I am a psychotherapist in New York City, and I have been one for about almost 30 years, and I treat individuals, families, and teenagers, and I am also a mom. I have a 21-year-old and a 17-year-old. And I wrote a book, which is called When Worry Works, How to Harness Your Parenting Stress and Guide Your Teen to Success. So that's my current professional life anyway. Was there anything throughout your own parenting experiences or even was it something that you saw in your clinical practice that families were struggling with? Achievement anxiety? And maybe we can even talk a little bit about what that is. Okay, sure. It's actually sort of like a three-pronged motivation. I think the the first was actually from my own childhood experience. I don't want this to sound like it was research, but I actually had been a, a very curious and kind of perceptive kid who, as I got older and pretty intellectual 
to some degree or cerebral to some degree. And I, as I got older and as school became more challenging, I actually had great difficulty concentrating and probably had undiagnosed learning issues. And I came from and come from a very academically driven, really high achieving family who really valued good grades, good test scores, good college stickers on the back of our suburban car. And so it was the source of great shame for me and great disappointment to my parents. And it took me a very long time to kind of disentangle and understand kind of what was interfering with like a seemingly promising academic career that got so derailed. And I actually, I almost didn't graduate from high school. I was sort of a hair shy of it. And my parents were much to their dismay and were really dissatisfied. And it took me a long time and a lot of exploration to personal exploration and also psychological research exploration to understand a little bit more about achievement, kind of what allows one to achieve, how emotions interact with that. So that was sort of always has been a source of interest for me. And then I have been working in Midtown Manhattan, which is a hotbed of competitive, high-achieving culture. And over the years, I have seen that these kids, I see many, many teenagers who come from very privileged and many well-intended loving homes with parents who really wanted their kids to be happy and also wanted them to excel. And the kids were excelling, had wonderful resumes, were getting into top-notch schools and were depressed and soulless and disaffected. And I kept thinking like, what is going on here? Where is the glitch? And simultaneously, I was raising my own kids in New York City And so I could really identify with the parents and kind of the complexities that they struggle with. And I could see my own kids sort of struggling with this hyper-competitive achievement culture and kind of the dilemmas that my husband and I encountered as a result. So it was sort of, it was a personal, it was a parental, and it was a professional kind of lens through which I was viewing this and trying to understand it. So if parents are listening to this right now and they're thinking, oh my gosh, like, I hope I'm not doing this to my child, you know, like creating or causing anxiety, like how would a parent know if that was going on within their family? Part of the purpose of my book is actually to get parents, and this is not a parent kind of blame game, but to get parents to examine kind of their own, we all have anxiety We need anxiety to survive. It's an integral part of being alive. And our culture has really kind of channeled anxiety into achievement. You know, anxiety is all about the future, propelled by feelings of uncertainty. And if we know nothing else, that the future is completely uncertain and unknown. And so parents kind of channel their anxieties into achievement, because if they can kind of set their kids on the right path, at least they feel like they're mitigating the uncertainty of their future, of kids' future. And there are not many measurable opportunities for us to see how kids are doing. So we look to sort of measurable, quantifiable metrics to help us determine, are we okay? 
Are we on the right track? Is my kid okay? So I think that we all do it. We all struggle with it to some degree. We all have anxiety. Part of being a parent is about preparing our kids for the future and about protecting our kids. And those are the two elements that comprised anxiety. Like anxiety is about the future and anxiety is about protecting ourselves and protecting our young. And we all have our own relationships with achievement, whether it was the way that we were raised, kind of like what I had been describing before, coupled with our own feelings about our own achievements, our own status, our own accomplishments. And so naturally, then this would extend to or is likely to play a part in our parenting. So we all have achievement anxiety to some degree, and it's a matter of understanding where yours originates, how it manifests itself, and then how you can channel it to be most constructive and effective with your teens. I know in your book, I believe you speak about the difference between intrinsic motivation and extrinsic. And I'm always curious about this because growing up, I was, I wasn't terrible in school, but I was just like an average student until I got to university. Then I was like, super nerd. Growing up, like I got pretty good grades. I was very much an athlete, like always like one of the best on the team. I'm also like almost six feet tall. So, but I always wondered, like my parents were never, I don't think they ever once asked me like, do you have homework today? Like we got to get your homework done. Like they were never on top of me about academics. They were never on top of me about athletics ever. So I'm always like, clearly I had a lot of intrinsic motivation. I never, even to this day, like I don't care about external, not rewards, but, you know, other people having to acknowledge like things that I'm doing that are maybe successful or whatever. So where does intrinsic motivation come from and how do parents do that? And maybe my parents were doing something that I didn't even notice that caused me to have that. Like, I'm not sure. I think we should interview your parents. Seriously. It's wonderful to hear and very almost inspiring, especially as a female, because a lot of times too, although I think that certainly males can be, but just as far as sort of stereotypes or generalizations that we make about females is that they are taught to be pleasing and other oriented. Maybe some of it is our wiring too and biology, but So a lot of times, too, females can be looking for not even an external reward as far as something material, but even acceptance or admiration or pleasing. So you were never a pleaser. I'm still not a pleaser. And I'm sure my my family, like, I'm sure my mom's going to listen to this. She's going to be like, yep, that is true. Like, I am not a people pleaser at all. I'm very much, like, comfortable setting boundaries, like... Wow, are you an only child? No, I'm a middle child. I am too. But wow. I, there, so why, what's my excuse? <laughs> <laughs> but we don't need to figure that out today. <laughs> but, but do you have sisters? I have a younger sister and an older brother. Huh, very interesting. And it sounds like you are intrinsically motivated now as well. Speaking of trying to track things or trying to be able to like observe things to see if we are on the right track, a lot of times 
intrinsic motivation is something I guess we can glean from watching somebody or project onto somebody, but it is those feelings of mastery and competence which actually motivate us or catalyze and I want to use the word propel again, but I'd like to use a different word, but I may have to say propel (laughs) that feeling. There is nothing like being able to do something. This is just a silly example, but I think I just started wearing contact lenses for the very first time in my life. It took me forever. I was in the doctor's office and they gave me like a tutorial. I was literally there an hour and I thought like, oh my God, I'm a contact lens flunky. Like, so they said, why don't you go home, try it? I could not do it. Went home, tried it a bunch of times. Eventually I got them in, but each morning that I had to put them in, I would have to set aside like an additional 45 minutes just to get these contact lenses. It didn't take that long. But eventually, once I figured out my own little mechanism for doing it, that now I do it with such ease. I'm so utterly impressed with myself. And I love to talk about my lenses. I always say, look how my lenses in. But it was so gratifying. I mean, because it is hard to put something in your eye. It's kind of not something that, you know, there are many reflexes that interfere. Once I figured it out and could do it, it's almost like I like putting them in and taking them out because I love the feeling that I mastered it. And it's something, I mean, this is, this is how I get my, my jollies, I guess, but (laughs) it's just such like a dopamine driven kind of thing, but it is so internal. And so maybe somebody could observe me putting in my contact lenses, but they wouldn't necessarily appreciate sort of how gratifying it is and how much it encourages me to try other things that are hard and maybe even biologically challenging to do. This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. If you're like me, then the bane of your existence is thinking about what to feed your children, prepping food, going to the grocery store, all of the above. Who has the time? We are all so busy, and it's important to incorporate things into our life that keep our life as simple and convenient as possible. Little Spoon is one way to do just that. They deliver fresh, healthy meals and snacks straight to your door that your kid will love at every eating stage they are in. The baby blends are fresh, organic baby food from single ingredients to multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. They partner with Clean Label Project to test their blends for 400 plus contaminants, including heavy metals, so you know you're getting good stuff. The Biteables are finger food meals that are cut to size to promote easy self-feeding, and they are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. The Little Spoon Plates are toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk and they taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. Think hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous eats like potstickers, gnocchi, and more. They also offer really fun things like puffs, they have smoothies, lunchers, and snacks. You quite literally never have to think about food again. It's just easy peasy. And did I mention this all comes right to your door? It is so flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. The price is right. The quality is unmatched. You are going to love it and your kids are going to love it. It is just a huge win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. 
Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode of The Mom Room and providing me with samples. You know how a lot of people can't leave the house without a water bottle? It's like their emotional support water bottle. I am the exact same way with facial tissues. And that is because I have such bad allergies, specifically in my sinuses, to the point where I know I'm going to have to blow my nose multiple times in a day, and I cannot be out in public without my emotional support facial tissues. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double-action combination of prescription-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Now I know if I have a big event, maybe I'm going to a concert, going out for dinner, I don't want to be blowing my nose every two seconds. It's very unbecoming. And so I will take Claritin D and enjoy my evening. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter or ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Is there something with like the growth and the process and the practice? So you always hear in parenting about not focusing on the outcome with your children, but like my son's four, but trying to point out to them, you worked really hard on that. Like my son and I all weekend, we're making these little perler bead designs. Oh my gosh. Like One of them would take forever, but like we were so focused and we had a system going and he was always really excited when we would finish one and like iron it. I was like, we worked really hard. Like I kept pointing out to him, like you're focusing so good. Like we are practicing, we're getting better. We have a system. And so is that something that kind of points out to your children that the process, the practice is what is important and not necessarily the outcome? So I think that it is very helpful to get kids to reflect on that internal experience. Like there is something gratifying about making a parent proud, which it doesn't sound like that's necessarily what you were saying. It sounds like you were trying to point out the process, as you said, of like practicing, practicing, and then building on that and growing and being able to see progress for Mm -hmm. oneself. However, or and, there is also the process of being able to say, how does that feel to you? Like, what is that feeling? The other day, my son came home and he had gotten, we don't focus a lot on grades in my house for all of the reasons that I had described before, but he had been working really hard on an essay. He had gotten some really positive feedback. He was very excited to tell us. And my older daughter was home from college. He came in and he was describing the whole situation and and the teacher's remarks and things like that. And so my daughter said, like, wait for it, wait for it, because I always say, like, how does that feel to you? Or like, are you proud of yourself or something before I even say, like, oh, my God, that's great, which I am proud of him. What's of greater importance is how it feels to him, like, and how he was able to do that. Like, and I think it's very helpful to 
to show kids. Like you started off thinking that you were not a good writer at all. You got the extra help that you needed and you were able to outline it in such a way. You went back and got some feedback, you know, from the teacher or got some more guidance or whatever. You worked on a little bit more so that you're even just sort of walking them through. Like you see how your sense of competence actually grew. And these were the steps that you took and it was very satisfying to you. And you can apply that to other things. You know, I mean, I don't say all of that as wordy as I am, but I do always say to my kids, well, like, how do you feel about it? Are you proud of yourself or something like that? Which my kids are completely, they know all of my shtick now. So they'll say like, okay, wait for it. I'm so predictable. I say this, but it is of greater importance because once the kids are tuning into, it sounds like you were not this kind of kid. But once you're tuning in to like, I want my mother to be proud, that's an extra perk. But that is not the thing that is actually going to engender the most like sort of valuable motivation. I assume a lot of kids are like running to their parents. Let's say they get an A plus because like the real positive or like boost of confidence for them is the parent's reaction as opposed to. I worked really hard on this. Like, I'm proud of myself. Like, I'm happy for myself. It's like, no, I just want to see the reaction of somebody else. Yes. And if that becomes too much of a focus, I think that that's what a lot of times what happens in academia is that then you or a lot of kids end up kind of like, what is it that you want from me? And I will produce that as opposed to like engendering a sense of like, interest, curiosity, passion for learning, passion for not, you know, that this is so lost in the process. And then kids become very myopic and just kind of like learning, not even learning to the test, but memorizing to the test or something. That's not what education in my eyes ought to be about. Like, that's not what we should be preparing kids to do is to be able to memorize things or learn things in such a calculated prescriptive way like that removes all creativity and individuality to learning I'm assuming if you don't get that outcome so you do the practice you do the process but you're just focused on that outcome well if you don't get that outcome at the end of it now everything's a waste of time as opposed to if you're valuing the progress the work the practice if you don't get the outcome, you still have that to be proud of. Absolutely. And all yeah. of those perks along the way. You know, I, I thought about it a lot so much through this book writing process, too. I really had, as much as I'm saying all of this, I mean, we're all not victims of this, but prone to this way of thinking. And so I wanted a tangible book at the end of this process. And I wanted to be able to share my message and things like that. But there was a lot of stuff along the way that was so gratifying, certainly frustrating, but also I learned a lot. I guess I could say that now because the book is coming out. I mean, had you asked me three years ago in the middle, I would have said like, there's nothing (laughs) valuable about this process. But, and so much of the time too, when we have our eyes simply on the outcome and we anticipate that the outcome is going to offer us all of the gratification, we really do miss out on these like mini reinforcements that we're getting along the way that are actually of much greater value. 
it's a fool's errand to think, you know, that that's going to be the satisfying kind of element of an experience, I think. So one of the hot topics that I made it a hot topic is quitting. And I'll tell you a little bit about my experience with quitting. So as I was saying before, I was very much like an athlete. My first year of my undergrad, I had a full scholarship to a school in Florida. Went there, like NCAA, absolutely hated it. It was like a nightmare. So at Christmas time, the holiday break, I told my parents, like, I'm quitting the team. Like, I'm not coming back here. And they were like, okay, like, you can come home, like, go finish university at home. At the time, I didn't think anything of it. But now that I'm 37, looking back on that, I was 19 at the time. I'm like, how difficult was that for my parents to be like, look at our daughter. Like I'm from Sudbury, which is like a tiny city in Northern Ontario. So I'm sure they're like so proud. Like, oh my God, our daughter is on a full scholarship, like NCAA playing volleyball. And now they have to tell everybody like, oh, she's quitting the team and coming home to finish school here. But they never even questioned it. Like they knew I was unhappy, wasn't working out. And now thinking back, I'm like, so many parents probably would have pushed that. Can you imagine? Oh, I'm going to come live back at home and you're going to have to pay for my university now because I'm just going to throw away this full scholarship. That is incredible. How did your parents get to be this? (laughs) I honestly don't know. There's many instances like that, that again, at the time I didn't think anything of it, but looking back now, I'm like, holy geez, like they were just like, I wasn't even afraid to tell them, like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, I really am not happy here. Didn't even cross my mind. And they were like, okay, like come home. I bring this up in my community and I've told this story before and people kind of have differing opinions And I'm sure a lot of times kids want to quit something and the parents are struggling with like, how much do I push them to stay in it? Because it's something that they really excel at, that they used to really enjoy. So it must be difficult to be like, well, no, I don't want to, you know, play the piano anymore. I don't want to play soccer anymore. And parents must be like, you're giving away this opportunity. You could get a scholarship. You could like... But if kids don't want to do it, so where is the sweet spot? How do parents navigate their children wanting to quit something that they excel at and that they've done for years? It is actually a a hot topic. You said that you made it up, but it's a really hot topic. And in fact, in my book, I profile different ways. I have this eight part, I call them parts, parent anxiety reaction types. And they're kind of eight different archetypes of ways that achievement anxiety manifests itself that I have seen through my many years of treating families. And one of the case examples in my book is exactly this, of a teenage girl who who excelled, was really an extraordinary dancer. And at the start of the pandemic, decided that she no longer wanted to dance. And the parents, uh, especially the father, was really, he was insistent that she wait, that this was an impulsive decision, that this was, you know, primarily attributable to the pandemic, that it would have been like to squander this ability and this excellence was so devastating to him. And eventually she felt so 
and this is an extreme example, but she felt so bullied and pressured by him and it became such a power struggle that she eventually threatened suicide because she felt like she had no way out, that he was forcing her into something that she absolutely had decided that she no longer wanted to do. But I think that the quitting, while it is a behavior that is meaningful and has like moral implications oftentimes for us as parents or us as a culture, you know, like, don't be a quitter. No, I was just gonna, I was even gonna kid with you that I didn't know I was on the phone with a quitter, you know, or a <laughs> podcaster. So we look at the behavior almost in isolation, but we know from psychology that anything that we are doing, anything that we're thinking has an emotional underpinning, that there is always an emotion that underlies, oftentimes more than one, and that issues are much more complex. You know, we like to break things down into like, she's a quitter or she perseveres, you know, and those are our two options. But having some kind of a a deeper understanding of what is going on is helpful I think the other thing, and I write about this a lot in the book, is for parents to identify what their values are. And that sounds kind of cliched, and it also sounds much simpler than it actually is. But if you think about sort of the three or four things that are most important to you that kind of like could be your North Star or your anchor or the things that are, a lot of times parents will say to me, you know, I just want them to be happy and successful or something like that. But when we really look at it sort of more deeply, what is it that we value most in the way that we conduct our lives, in the way that we carry ourselves in the world, things like that. And those values can be like our mission statement, the same as, you know, a company would have or a corporation. Like, what is it that I'm trying to achieve here? It's not only priorities. It's really like, what do I deeply value? So I would project onto your parents, at least, that this is probably presumptuous, but I'm just suggesting that to them, what was of most importance was that you felt like you were, this is not exactly a value, but you felt fulfilled, that you felt like you were making progress, that you were directing your life in a way that felt like aligned with who you were, something to this effect. So the fact that they would have to pay for college. And that's a hard one to forego. I'm in the throes of paying college tuitions. I mean, that would be a hard pill to swallow. So clearly your mental health was of greater importance to them than any financial kind of thing. They must have really trusted you to know, which is real. Your parents, I'm utterly, they get an A plus, even though I don't like grades. But And have you ever reflected with them on it kind of retrospectively? I should talk to them about that. Like, obviously, my mom listens to the podcast and we have conversations. She's actually been on the podcast a couple times. And so maybe I'll bring her on and we can talk about all these things because I'm shocked. Like, when I think back on it, like how difficult that must have been. But thank God they did. And another thing was, like, the view of success and how... I know in your book, you talk about how like a lot of us have this really narrow view of what success is. And it's like grades, college, athletics, or you play an instrument or you're a dancer or whatever. And it's like, if I didn't quit the NCAA, I would not have a PhD. That is guaranteed because that was like 
going to volleyball camp and you just did a little bit of school on the side. Like, so once I went home, I was like full focused. I'm only doing academics. I wanted to get a PhD. And so from there on, I was like A plus student. That was my focus. So it's interesting. I'm sure my parents at the time weren't like, oh, okay, if she doesn't play volleyball anymore, it's okay because she's going to go on and do the academic route, right? But that's what ended up happening. But when you have this narrow view, it's like, oh, she's going to give up her volleyball scholarship. Well, what was I going to do playing volleyball? Like go to the Olympics? And Like, no. So at the end of the day, it was the right choice. But in the moment, I'm sure lots of parents are like, no, you know, because they can't see the future and what quitting one thing could, you know, lead their kids like to something else. Yes, yes, definitely. And I actually, it was, I was talking to a very dear friend. She had been an opera singer. She loves music. Music is very important to her. She has a son who wanted to quit and is also very musical. He's one of these kids who's good at everything. And he also loves baseball, had become like the star pitcher of his team or something, the captain of the team. And he wanted to quit guitar. And my friend was so disappointed and really didn't want to like allow him to. And so as we were sort of walking through, she said, you know, like, walk me through this as a therapist, you know, and so we were talking about what was most important to her and really trying to like hone in on it. And she was saying, you know, I want him to be, I want him to be a valuable contributor to society. I want for him to be invested in something and really like put his all into it or really stay focused on it. I want for him to be, I don't know, things like that. And so we were realizing that while it was disappointing for her to have him stop the guitar maybe temporarily or maybe forever, who knows, these qualities and these values that were so important to her were absolutely being expressed through the baseball. So while it would not have been her chosen activity for him or in general, or wasn't even something she didn't necessarily value baseball. So she felt better about being able to say like, ah, yes, I see. Like he is invested he's very invested in it he puts in the he goes the extra mile for it he's really invested in being part of the team and being a leader of the team i mean who can argue with that so yes i think that it is it was helpful for her and i have said this many times to parents too i think that it's useful even as you are sort of walking a teenager or any kid through kind of this process Well, it sounds like your parents, there was something intuitive about it. So they didn't necessarily say like, Renee, this is what's most important to us. So this is why we're like agreeing with this decision. But for my friend to even say, I mean, certainly her son knew that that she was not a baseball fan at all. I think she didn't even understand it and that she loves music and that she it was really important to her. And so she said, look, what's really important to me is that you are blah, 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 what I just articulated. But she articulated it to him so that she's also saying, this is what drives my train. This is what drives my thinking. I'm keeping my eye on this ball, maybe as unathletic as she was, but this, you know, of this psychological ball and or values ball. And I think that's helpful for kids to hear, you know, so because that reinforces then like my values drive my decisions. I'm not making a decision because I'm afraid of what could potentially happen. I'm making a decision based on what I do believe to be important, you know, and there is a distinction. 
And it's very tempting to make decisions based on what you're afraid of. My husband and I both turn the big four zero next year, and we have been thinking a lot about our long-term health. We want to get smarter about our health, make better choices, but also not feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction. There is so much information out there and it can be hard to figure out what applies to you, what is right, and what is wrong. Well, let me introduce you to the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. Don't just take my word for it. Naomi's Apple Review says, Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume even if you don't understand the science. With loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting cutting-edge science. You can't go wrong with a weekly podcast where world-leading scientists explain how their own research could improve your health. If you're ready to join millions of others like Naomi transforming their health, then search for Zoe Science and Nutrition wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night, and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner, they have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment, and there's also a glossing detangling which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair is too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolavie.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. Those values that you mentioned, it's nice like because they're generalizable to other things. So like it's not you excelling at volleyball that is important. It's other values that can be applied somewhere else, like academics in my case. So yeah, it's interesting. I wanted to talk a little bit about anxiety in general. I have anxiety. Most people, like my friends, like anxiety is just rampant (laughs) nowadays, I think. Achievement anxiety and then just general anxiety. And I always say like, I'm anxious for things that I care about if that makes sense. So I know that there are benefits to anxiety. However, at a certain point, it can limit us and it becomes not beneficial. But when is anxiety beneficial and at what point does it start to limit us? It's it's funny because I think everybody has anxiety. I mean, we all need anxiety to survive. So like, if you don't have anxiety, you're dead. Like, it's just, it's sort of, but certainly we... We don't always know how often it is operating or sort of when it's present. So it is always helpful, too, because it's such an amorphous kind of internal process to even put the label on it sometimes can be helpful and to not pathologize it per se. So we know, for example, like before you were a quitter and you were, I'm kidding. I need to get a t-shirt that's like quitter. Quitter, yes. (laughs) Or rename the podcast. Quitter. If you think about like if you were anxious before a big game, it actually sort of, it helps you focus. It actually gives you more physical strength. You know, your heart beats faster. Like there are many physiological advantages to being anxious. 
about something and actually kind of can enhance your performance. And certainly something that is intellectual or cognitive as well. I knew that I was going to be doing this podcast. I knew that I would probably be, I'm always a little bit anxious, even though I've done many of them. So just reviewing kind of what questions I thought you might ask to prepare myself so that I just felt a little bit less anxious. That was useful to do. God knows what I would have said had I not prepared. (laughs) I'm kidding. But so these kinds of things, you know, help us. It also, I think about it a lot with the airport, even, you know, there are, this is the quintessential like couple. It's one of many quintessential couple fights or something. You know, my husband is somebody who needs to get to the airport hours and hours in hours. My husband too. He's a very disciplined person and he's usually, because I can be a little flakier, we usually sort of adhere to his style or whatever. But to him, if I asked him, he would say, you know, well, I just like to be at the airport early. It makes me feel more comfortable. But if we sort of rephrase that, it's actually, I know that I feel less anxious or it makes me too anxious to cut it close. For me, you know, and these are the different ways that anxiety manifests itself. It actually, I get anxious sitting somewhere. Like I just, I would rather cut it close somehow or other. I don't know if that's my other way of getting my jollies. It's like running onto a plane, but certainly. So these are ways that help us prepare. So that bit of anxiety actually sort of helps him to make sure that we get to places on time or that we do prepare, blah, blah, blah. But if it should sort of pass over the point at which it's excessive or it's more than our brain can't always kind of gauge or calibrate itself to give just the right amount of, it's a little bit like the gas pedal, like on your car, like how much you actually need. It just sends off the same degree of hormonal sort of loading that it would whether you're giving a talk or whether you're... I don't know, getting up in the morning or something, it doesn't necessarily always regulate itself. So it's those times when there's sort of like too much hormone, too much kind of physiological loading that actually kind of interferes with our ability to think clearly, to be able to be reasonable, to be able to regulate our our emotions. And so when we are very reactive, it's likely that we have too much anxiety in those moments. And everybody has sort of different cues that they get that sort of indicate to them or signals to them like, you know, you're in the red zone there. Like you need to sort of come back to center before you can perform at your best or interact at your best. So before we end, I thought we could do obviously lots of People listening, our parents, they have mostly, I think, younger children. But if we talk about achievement anxiety, especially when it comes to academics, so Milo's in kindergarten. He doesn't even really have homework or anything like that now. But let's say kids that are in grade school, like grade five, six, what are tips that you would have for parents on how to instill intrinsic motivation in them and not put all the focus on the outcome, like the grade, all that like report cards. What are some tips that parents can actually use in their home with their kids with regard to academics to kind of avoid creating the achievement anxiety and putting focus more on other things as well, like the progress? 
I think that, well, it's very helpful. This is sort of like my, I don't know, mantra or something for parents to reflect on themselves. Like I think most parents have said to me, I'm not the one putting the pressure on my kids. And I trust that parents really feel that. I think that it is critically important. And this is the research has shown this like ad infinitum that parents convey to their kids that they love them, that they accept them, that they appreciate them, no matter like their achievements, that their achievements are secondary to who they are as human beings, that their love or their acceptance of their kids is not contingent upon their scores, grades, things like that. Because basically then that's saying, you know, I mean, I, I called your parents an A plus, you know, but there have been several studies that have shown that kids have said, teenagers have said, other kids have said, like, what's more important to your parents, that you're a kind person or that you, you know, excel in school or something. And invariably, like a disproportionate number of kids say, you know, it's most important to my parents that I do well in school or whatever. So I think that also, once again, your parents were not this way, which is utterly impressive. I think it's very important that when parents are talking to their kids, a lot of times too, we think that we are conveying to our kids, like you were saying before, even like the things that I'm anxious about are the things that we care about. So we really care about our kids. So that's what we're anxious about a lot of times. And so, so often we say to our kids, like when they come home from school or how was your math test? How did you do on the blah, blah, blah? Do you have a lot of homework? And we think that we're being helpful and certainly our intentions are good. But actually the message to kids is sort of like what is utmost importance to me is this stuff. And in fact, like there's so much more that goes on at school that is so much more in my value system, like rich and important. And we do know that the kids who are most successful and the adults who are most successful are actually those who can read other people well, who can know themselves well, who can communicate well. I'm actually not communicating that as precisely, but there really is, we know the importance of emotional intelligence. And so to value in some way for that to be what parents are modeling. You know, I care about you. I care about how you feel. I want to help you be able to understand yourself because that's who they're going to be walking around with the rest of their lives. And so our imposing lessons in an effort to sort of teach them something is not necessarily giving them the internal experience. So I think that if parents can really focus on things like how do you feel? Who did you sit with at lunch? What did you enjoy? Whatever. We really want to focus on non-achievement related things. It's interesting when you were saying like the kindness versus achieving in school. Like, I think it's so easy to ask about like, oh, what'd you get on your test? Or, oh, do you have homework today? Because those are like things that you can see. Like there's a number on a paper. It's like a thing. And if we grew up in that kind of you know, mentality, then obviously that's where we're at. But when you kind of put it with the kindness, it made me think about even just pointing out little things. Like if I go to the park in the neighborhood and Milo's friend is there and they're playing, like afterwards making a point to be like, you played really nicely with your friend at the park. And and just like acknowledging 
those things. Like, what did you do at recess? Like, oh, how did you feel at recess? Like, you know, like there's so much more that we can bring up and ask our kids about than just academics and practice, like practice doing that. And then it will just become a daily thing that you talk about. Yeah, I love that. And even in the way that we talk to ourselves, you know, if you think about, well, what goes on in our own inner dialogue and also what we talk about with one another, you know, it just sort of being conscious of perpetuating this kind of like, you know, well, so-and-so's, yeah, I heard so-and-so got into this school or is really perpetuating like this is the emblem the emblem that represents this person is their, the school they attend or the grade that they got because so much of the time, there's so much more richness that we're missing out on. And while it may seem more ephemeral or more amorphous, it's actually sort of more human. And so this idea of saying things about human beings like, you know, they are a this or they are a that or they're smart or they're stupid or they is really just, it's such a, distillation of a complex, you know, emotional human being. If I could wordsmith you for a moment, even with the Milo example too, after the park, sometimes it's helpful to even reflect on like, it can be hard to share. It's hard to see someone else play with your toy. But I saw that you were able to give so-and-so so that you could even be that granular. I mean, you could only imagine how annoying it is for me as a mother. Like my kids are like, oh God, because sometimes also kids, the more specific you can be and if you can even identify for them, like just kind of what I saw that you kept, you kept going over to the, to the little girl on the bench or whatever and asking her to play. I bet that felt really good to her or something like that. So that you really, it's almost like, my son is into sports broadcasting and I always think like, I'm like running commentary of like what's going on of like, I see that this is going on and then that's going on. And not that we have to do it all the time, but it just, I think it's so helpful to attach words to what you think is going on. And you're not just reinforcing what it was that they did, but how come you thought that that was so special? So they're not just like nice or that this is, you're a nice person because you did this but I see that this is what I observed and this is what I imagine you, you know, that that was hard to do or something. I mean, Milo is forced and I'm speaking as if he's, you know, 28, but in four-year-old terms. Yeah, I love that. And the scary thing about like putting someone's value on like, oh, I go to Harvard, like those things can be taken away so quickly. So now what? Like, oh, I had anxiety, so I dropped out of Harvard. I'm just going to go to, like, the local community college. If that's what their value, like, as a person was because they go to Harvard and that's what, like, all their eggs are in that basket, that can be taken away. Just like you can get injured as an athlete. Well, there you go. Now where's your self-worth, you know? Like, yeah, so I love that. And that is one of the biggest precursors to depression a lot of times too, is actually when someone's sort of whole sense of self-worth is hinged on one thing like that, as you say, once it dissipates, is removed, that then that's when, I mean, we see all the time with athletes actually, that then, and while I'm very respectful and admire, you know, athleticism and, and things like that, to just have something else 
that you are also of, you don't need other skills, but other emotional skills that, and I'm still me and I still have something to offer the world and my relationships and blah, blah. Yeah. Well, this was a great conversation. I love this topic. Excited to read the book. So can you tell people when the book comes out and where they can get it? I also think because a lot of the listeners are parents of younger kids, I think that it is something of value. Adolescents are kind of on the cover, but in fact, I think that it's useful information for parents of kids of any age, because really all of this achievement stuff is applicable to, you know, very early. Are they, you know, are they walking yet? Oh no, so-and-so's child is walking. This this so-and-so's child knows how to read. I don't know how to read, you know, so we see how achievement related things are kind of so integrated into parenthood in general. But anyway, the name of the book is When Worry Works, How to Harness Your Parenting Stress and Guide Your Teen to Success. You can pre-order it now through the publisher, who is Roman and Littlefield, but also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere online that you buy books. And you can also order it through drdanadorfman.com on my website, I think, there are definitely ways to order it through that. The book is being released finally, finally on February 13th, which is really, really, really exciting. Finally. Yes, it's been a really long process and a very exciting process. And I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled for opportunities like this to be able to talk about the book or related topics. I just find it obviously I'm so jazzed by it. And I think it's like, and I love. I love talking to people who like talking about psychology. So it's a niche topic, but it's so important and so applicable to every single person. That's why it's so interesting. But I don't think it's something that's talked about enough. So when I saw like the topic of the book, I was like, oh my God, yes, I love this. (laughs) So yeah. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the chance. I mean, I've so enjoyed talking to you. Your story is great. And I think I might write a book about your parents. Oh, my mom's going to be so excited. (laughs) I'm going to get her on the podcast. We're going to go through all these things and I'll send you the link to the episode so you, you can hear her explanation. Yeah. I've heard you talk about her before, but I must not have heard the episodes that she actually was on. And, and because they clearly were really grounded or sort of had their North Star, whether it was deliberate or they're just innately that way. And to have both of them that way, you know, sometimes there's one parent who's a little bit more. I know it's interesting. And I, like a lot of my training was in attachment. And so when I, where did I go for, I went to like New York and then I went to Minnesota and I was doing like this really in-depth attachment training And learning about it, I was thinking back to my own childhood and I was like, oh my God, like my mom like nailed it. And she's like, really? Like she has no idea. Like she's not even aware. But I'm like, all these things that you did and that I can remember was so like bang on. So yeah, it's really fascinating. That's incredible. And her parents, I think they must have been like well-loved or well-raised. Yeah, we're going to talk about it. So... There's a lot of good material there. And she probably, I think it's also amazing when people are just naturally this way. So they're like, oh, 
I don't know. I never thought about it because as parents now, we are so deliberate about every, I mean, even I was wordsmithing you about say this, not that, use this word, not that word. I mean, we can't like, so, and she just was being your mom and conveyed these messages. That's why you weren't a pleaser. I'm a quitter, not a pleaser. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You said it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you.